Welcome to the Cinema Book Club podcast. I'm Charlene. And I'm Chelsea. Every episode, we read a book, then watch the film adaptation of the book and discuss. I'm a development producer, so I tend to work a lot with scripts and adaptations. And I'm a cinema programmer, and watching films is what I do. Shall we? Let's go. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Chelsea. What, what is What are we doing? What is What is this thing? <laughs> it's been so long. I what, hardly why remember. Is there machinery involved in our, in our chat? I feel like we might have done this um, at the start of the last one as well, because there was such a big gap. We're very it's busy a, people. It's a timeless gag. I think it's uh, It has taken us quite a while. This is our, um, this is our April book club. It's true, which is Ghost World. Ghost World. Yes. Um, and... Man, uh, even I know I, we don't say post pandemic because truly we are still in it, yeah. but you know, life has been busy. Life has been busy. I think there was a lot of things that like didn't get to happen during lockdown that are now happening like gigs. So I yeah. feel like I'm just at gigs, gigs every day. Holidays. <laughs> holidays. Uh, seeing people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is all good. It's just, it can be kind of difficult to find time to record podcasts yeah. in the middle of it all. It used to be which which weeknight will we yeah. do a podcast? I was like, which week? Nah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which week do we have a night? But that's a good complaint, I suppose. It's true. And it's nice to be coming back to Ghost World because that mm. is, I think, a favourite for both of us. Yes. And it was a really nice chat at yeah. the Lighthouse Cinema where we watched it with it was really nice. real life people. Yay. Um, And this is also just to, to say um, part of our 10 year anniversary mm-hmm. season where we are revisiting books and films that we've loved over the last decade. Yeah. Wow. And the first time we did Ghost World was 2015? Yeah. Sure. Just like seven years ago. Who's going to fact check? Nobody. Nobody. They probably wouldn't. I'm probably the only person who's able to do that because I'm the person who programs. <laughs> it would be in my records. Um, <laughs> but unless someone has an amazing memory or a great diary, then no one will fact check. But it was a long time ago in our defense. And that was the... I, it was not the first time I'd seen Ghost World, the film, but it was the first time I'd read the graphic novel and was in fact the first graphic novel that I'd ever yes. read, which you at the to. age, at the time of 29, I was a little embarrassed by and I'm still <laughs> embarrassed that it took me that long. I know, there's no need to be embarrassed. That's why we have book clubs. That's true. And I, I tried to, to make things. up for it because um, it definitely turned me on to the form in a way yeah. that I didn't. I, I will also just, just to say in my defense, it was not a <laughs> snobbery thing. Yeah. It is because I am a touch OCD sometimes. And I thought that I would not be able to handle looking at like panels of pictures where I would feel compelled to look at every single detail in case there was some clue in there that was supposed <laughs> to be missing, plus reading the text. And I thought it would be sensory overload. And turns out when they're good, that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. Um, sometimes I just kind of feel like I don't know where to start with graphic novels because, you know, you walk into a comic shop and you just look around and go like, Feck, there's just so much here. Yeah. I don't know what's the good one, what's the bad ones. I don't like know that world well enough to know people's names. Um, and I know the answer is I should just ask Dave Mead, our friend yes. and comic lover. Uh, You'll get a full curriculum. Advice. <laughs> yeah. you, you will get a syllabus <laughs> that will take you through. I'm sure that he's got a, a six month program, a two year program, yep. a four year. I should make him do that for me, actually. Uh, so I could put like familiarize myself with it because I do. I really do enjoy the act of reading a graphic novel. And I think uh, I mean, Ghost World is it. I, I mean, for me personally, it was a good one to start with. It's sort of an interesting one 
in that it is, it's different maybe than other graphic novels. And I'm sure there are some purists out there who'd really dive into this more, but it is a, it is a collection Mm. of uh, these comics about these two girls slash women that was then put together into the book. Yeah. Uh, And then maybe, you know, maybe there are some that are kind of more, uh, I don't want to say fully formed, but, you know, conceived as full stories as graphic novels. I would say Sabrina is a good one. Oh, that's the one that won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago, I think. Okay. So if you want to start, start high. Okay. Oh, that um, sounds very high. <laughs> David Boring also. Um, oh yeah. I have Klaus. that on my shelf for ages and I still haven't read That's it. great. Um, yeah. And also by Daniel Klaus, Klaus, mm-hmm. Klaus, mm-hmm. who wrote Ghost World. Brought yeah. it back around. Yes. Um, we also did Big for Vendetta. Am I right? Yeah. Yes. Is that the only one we've done apart from Ghost World? I think so. We were trying to do one each year, but I don't think we did. No, Persepolis. Oh, yes. That was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So we haven't done too badly. Yeah. We could do better. We will do better. Yes. Yeah. Next um, year. What's your history with Ghost World, uh, book or film? So film... I saw when it came out, which would have been 2001, 2002. So I would have been like early 20s. Yeah. Um, uh, no, younger. What? 1983 is my year of birth. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I would have been like a late teenager. <laughs> oh, fuck, God. Um, and- 1983 was my year of birth. <laughs> um, I'm so bad at this. Um, and it was kind of at that period of time when like I was discovering things but not necessarily knowing that weird things were good I just knew I liked them so like Mm -hmm. I thought Ghost World was one of those films that I watched because I'd read in Empire that it was good or something and then like really reacted strongly to it but was like I don't know if this is good but I really like it. Did you have because I feel like I had a thing and Ghost World would be an example of this and maybe Napoleon Dynamite another Mm. one where I didn't you know didn't have a lot of access to indie cinema. Yeah. I mean, I, I did more than most people because I was very close to New York City, I guess, but it wasn't mm. part of my social radar. So I didn't know where to look. And then there were a few films like Ghost World, like Napoleon Dynamite that kind of broke through. Yeah. And would be in the cinemas and also like, you know, easy to spot in Blockbuster or wherever, or people were talking about it in a way where it kind of rose to the surface and then maybe, go, oh, yeah, because I so guess this it was could be, like, this could be a film as well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's it. I guess there was a period of time, like, like maybe like five year period of my life where like, when was like the Big Lebowski was like 98 or something. So like, I didn't see that until I was like 26. Well, I remember watching that being like, I guess a young teenager going like, this is weird but I like it and I want to watch it again, you know, like this kind of thing, or even like the early Wes Anderson films that, because I didn't have a circle of people telling me what cool indie films are like yourself. It was just stuff you found and thought looked interesting. And I guess like, it's not like this was pre-internet, but internet just wasn't really a thing. Like I, you couldn't really just go like, there was no Twitterati telling you what's cool. Yeah, like I, re- I remember one day actually, because once you got to high school, like definitely there is a little bit more of a, oh, you're into things that are a bit less mainstream. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I remember a group of friends of mine, we had a day where we all decided we were each going to bring a movie and just watch it. And it had to be one that we didn't think anyone else would have seen. Good and I remember, it's horrible. I can't actually remember who was there apart from my friends, Ashraya and Keaton. I think I think Keaton might have brought American History X, which maybe maybe now he would (laughs) he 
he would have different opinions about. Um, I think Ashraya brought Harold and Maud, oh. and I brought the anniversary party. Of course. Um, you I never like come to anyone's house without bringing that movie. <laughs> <laughs> cannot be my friend. Um, and Ghost World was not part of that particular day, but that mm. was, it, I remember that being like a great, you know, we kind of just watched movies for like six or seven hours great. and it was really fun. Um, but yeah, Ghost World was definitely one of the ones where I was aware of it. And maybe Thora Birch had something to do with that because this would have been right off of American Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that had a great, you know, cultural impact. Maybe no film has aged worse in such oh, a short period of time. I think, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> Which is still really Thomas good. Newman. <laughs> but yeah, she like, I think definitely like I was aware of her. Yeah. Um, and I knew her from her being a child actor yeah. as well, obviously. Focus and whatnot. Um, focus. But yeah, I think, I think it, there was like, it was one of those things that when you're young, you take a chance on something, you not, you don't quite, you're not very sophisticated in your tastes, so you don't know how to feel about it, but you know you like something. So, yeah. um, that was one of those things for me. And then I just was completely obsessed with it for ages. And I still, like, I, I can't even say why. Like, I just really liked it. I really liked her and her little world. I, think, I guess it's just, it creates a world really well. That's very well put. Um, do you want to give us a little summary? Yes. <laughs> You're very um, convincing there. <laughs> so I've, just, I've seen this film a thousand million times. I still don't think I can do a good summary. Um, so Ghost World is about two best friends, Enid and Rebecca, who have just graduated from high school or just graduating from high school. And their only plan for life is that they're going to move in together after school. And uh, very quickly kind of becomes clear that Enid is kind of backing away from that plan, doesn't know what to do with herself. Rebecca's got a job in a Starbucksy type coffee place. She's kind of getting ready to save and move out and get all their stuff together. Um, whereas Enid's kind of spending her summer going around playing pranks on people and annoying people who work in the cool little indie shop and all that kind of stuff. And um, through one of their many little pranks, um, she meets Seymour, and Seymour is a hopeless nerd, lovely man played by Steve Buscemi, um, who she kind of is taken with because he is uh, a dork like her and a bit of an outsider. Um, and so her relationship with Seymour kind of uh, takes over her world a little bit. And Rebecca moves a bit more into, you know, her work friends and they see themselves getting a bit split um, meanwhile, Enid also has to do summer school, which is like an art class because she failed art. Um, so there's a lot of misadventures around her coming in with her like nice drawings that are cool and weird and very special. But her teacher thinks they're empty because she's pretentious. Is that <laughs> fair to say? Um, jealous. Yeah, jealous. Uh, yeah. And... And yeah, so as the summer goes on, uh, Enid and Rebecca are kind of driven apart by circumstance and maybe Enid not being quite sure that she wants to live the settled world of living with her best friend and having to pay for an apartment. Am I missing stuff? I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I guess there's also like she and Seymour, their, like their friendship kind of mm. turns into, I don't know if we'd even call it a romance, but they end up sleeping together yeah. and there is a like 20 year age gap. Yeah. 20 kind of an anti-romance in a way. Yeah, I think so. And and then, so their relationship becomes 
complicated mm-hmm. in a way that um, neither of them really know what to do with. Yeah. And I don't know if this is too much detail, but <laughs> sorry, it's not going to be as bad as it sounds. Um, that just about her art class and she... Um, she takes a piece of art from Seymour for her art class that um, we'll probably get into this more in the uh, in, later in the podcast um, that ends up getting him in trouble in work. And he ends up losing his job because of something that she has done. Yeah. Um, and something that she's done, which is sort of like in keeping with her character of like wanna be anarchic yeah, punky kid. Mm. Um, and as you say, kind of playing pranks on people and kind of like, why, why are you taking things seriously? And sort of, you know, it's right at the cusp of you, you kind of need to act a little bit like an adult, which yeah. I don't generally as a rule, I don't think is a great life lesson, <laughs> no. but maybe I think that this film makes a good argument for it in sort yeah. of teaching her a little bit of, um, compassion and empathy. Cause I think that she's, yeah. she's kind of selfish in yeah. a lot of ways and it sort of doesn't think beyond the joke and yes into the wider right world yeah. yeah so that's basically ghost world i don't know if it even sounds any good this is why i was confused when i was a teenager <laughs> but uh, but it is but it's it, as you say it's a really compelling world and uh, you know i don't think you get book smart without ghost world you know you don't i think it really watching a kind of uh, a female friendship that is transforming and not and kind of crumbling, but not because of like a guy. Yeah. I mean, Seymour is there, but he's not in any way yeah, the, no. the the cause of their their breakup. Um, and also not because of one big event, but mm-hmm. just we're literally growing apart across the summer. Yeah. And I think that that summer after high school is probably a time where a lot of people are trying to shed versions of themselves in preparation mm-hmm. for another version of themselves. Mm-hmm. And you see Rebecca having a really definitive idea of what that can be and Mm -hmm. Enid not knowing herself, but kind of sensing that she actually doesn't want what Rebecca wants. And that's a different sensation because they've always been so in tune and not being comfortable with that. And so, so it's a really interesting character study in that way. It is. And like, it's very much coming of age in the way that, as you've just said, like Rebecca is, you know, quote unquote, growing up, learning responsibility. Enid's just not up for that like she's just not ready for that she wants to go on silly adventures do whatever it is that she wants to do and they do quite naturally grow apart and like that's obviously the the drama the central drama of the film but then by the end they've kind of made peace with each other knowing that they're going to move on in different directions but they still love each other and yeah and it's nice it's also a narrative that was really built into the film that does not exist in the comic books mm. or in the, in the graphic novel. And again, in that way, it's maybe because they were sort of a collection of comics about these two friends that had been published kind of over a few, a span of a few years. I yeah. Think. I think it was four years or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and they're just weird little situations. So each book is like some weird prank or some silly thing they notice on the street. And- yeah. Or a person they encounter. And I think that the film takes a pretty standard narrative structure to yeah. that. And I think at the time there was definitely people who were less pleased with that. And mm-hmm. other people, I mean, I remember one looking at one review from the time that was like, it's a better version of this film than we could ever, or better adaptation of this novel than we could have ever expected or deserved because yeah. to do it really religiously w- would have not felt like a film. No, probably. it would have been weird. It would have been like trying to make, like beefs and 
butthead or something. Like, you know, yeah. it's just like it's or Daria, random maybe. little. It's Daria. Yeah. <laughs> Beavis and Butthead. Daria. I'm more familiar with Beavis yeah, and Butthead. Now I want to ask Daria. Uh, I do like Daria. Well, I was called Daria in college for a while there. So, like, you know, that's mean. No shock. No, not at all. I did have long brown hair at the time and glasses. So anyway, I deserve that. Um, I was never called Beavis or Butthead, so that's good. Um, but yeah, no, it would. It was such a, it's strangely like, there, there are tiny things that happen in each book. Yeah. And actually the film does kind of reflect that structure in that like, it, it is quite episodic. It is like weird little adventure, weird little adventure, weird little adventure, weird little adventure. And they're sort of strung together really nicely. Um and it goes from like, so like say, say, for example, like the party that Enid brings Rebecca to um, in Seymour's house with all his weird older friends who are really into like ancient records. Yeah. Like that could be a comic, you know, like that, that little incident, but that does push the for- the story forward really well as well. Yeah. So in lots of ways and their relationships. And the film also, I think. Like, even though this, I, I think that the central relationship really is about the two of them. It is Enid's film and Rebecca does yeah. drop off quite a lot. Whereas in the comic, she's, she's kind of given equal. Weight. Yeah. You know, it yeah. Is about the two of them. You get more of Rebecca's home life in the film. You mm. only get Enid's home life. Yeah. Um, so it's a little more balanced, but again, it was a choice that was made mm. that, that works. Yeah. But, and like, I guess Seymour is not really a character in the books he's he's he come, there yeah he shows up but he's the prank not. happens but yeah. then he's just gone so the prank that we're talking about is seymour places a personal ad and enid says basically oh why don't we respond to this if this is so lame we'll respond to it and like go to the place where we set him up and it'll be hilarious and in the comic this happens they watch the man get progressively sadder they feel crap he leaves and then he kind of shows up at the window in a sort of horror move saying like, oh, I hope you're happy or something. And in the film, they watch, they feel sad for him. He leaves and then she feels this urge to make amends and, you know, fix this guy's life. Mm. Um, so tries to introduce him to a nice woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and does, but she's not the right woman for him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fair because he's not. Yeah. I don't, or she's not, I mean, the right woman for him. But um, well, that ends very badly. Um, but it is also, as you said, like she, Enid and Seymour are both, like, I, I don't even think they're that weirdly kindred spirits because I think we both saw the tweet where it was like the pipeline to identifying with Enid to identifying with Seymour well, is, yeah. <laughs> is pretty. <laughs> but they, um, you know, Enid likes weird old things and retro things and old music. And she works or she, you know, she hangs out with guys who are doing their little chat books and, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that's very much her world. And Seymour is an adult who, you know, is in that world and collects records and collects memorabilia and, uh, certainly is, I think someone, you know, we can identify yeah. with. Well, he's like potentially future her in a way. She, yeah. she, could, she could be him. And I think that that's, that's where the film does quite an interesting thing in developing that friendship because actually she and Rebecca were both the weirdos. And then Rebecca is like, actually, I'm going to be a bit normie. I'm going to mm. work at Starbucks. And I would really like, I got these cute things at Ikea and that's kind of horrifying to Enid. So she tries to rebel in every way she can from like dying her hair green to mess up their job yeah. interview or yeah. not showing up for things or whatever it might be. And then she finds Seymour and she thinks, Oh, well maybe, maybe I can still be the way I am now forever. Maybe you can stay a kid forever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, also sees 
is is witness to the sadness of that in Seymour. Yeah, and he keeps trying to like tell her that yeah like, you don't want to be that like this this is not the cool way to be but she does have to like it's a it's a constant little journey for her into and we don't know where she you know the film is left quite open-ended we don't know where she ends up but I always feel like that just means she's made a decision and that is to grow up and move on and find a thing for herself instead of just trying to stay in this same little yeah in this ghost world where do so we should talk about the ending for a minute because so at the very end of the film um so there's a nice little gag which is also from not a gag it's a a moment that is in the comic as well of a man who's constantly waiting for a bus that has been discontinued for years and they try to tell him this Mm. and uh enid and rebecca try to tell him this and he just like nope i'm you don't waiting for the bus talking about and then one day one night witnesses the bus come and take the man. And then at the end of the film, we see Enid at night waiting for this bus to some unknown destination. Mm. And I suppose that some people, including Thora Birch read, this as quite a dark ending, like read it as, you know, this, that Enid decided to end her own life. I never saw it that way. I saw it as she's just going off somewhere else and, and the unknown is part of that. And it's okay to enter the unknown. Yeah. But what was your... Oh, like it never occurred to me that she had chosen to end her own life, but I had heard that a number of times. And I mean, I don't know what anybody's intention was, but I would very much like to believe that this is not what the ending is. Um, I have always just seen it as like, just really like she's taken a plunge to the next step in her life because she's so like, she's stuck in her house with her dad and like she doesn't want him to move on with his ex girlfriend and she doesn't want Rebecca to move on and you know so she's doing everything to avoid any change even though she thinks she's cooler than everything the only actual thing that she really needs to do is to just change and move and make a clean break for herself and I mean that's I strongly feel that about her and I just don't feel like she's the type who would just or like that the story led us to and then she just decided I'm going to end it all I just that doesn't make sense for how I've read every single part of that film. Yeah, I I would agree. I think that's it. It's not, it's not even about her as a character necessarily, but about what the storytelling is pointing you towards. Yeah, um, it's it's change and growth. And I I think um, so. The director is um, Terry Swigoff. Swigoff. Yeah, uh, I'm always and the writer. Did he write it as well? I've actually just he, he and Daniel Klaus and I don't know how like closely they did, but they yeah, together. together. And they'd been buds separately yeah. for years, I yeah. think as well. Um, I, I think that they have, I hope I'm not just making up a, a memory, but I, I think that they have said in interviews that like, they're not going to comment on the ending. They're aware that some people have a version of the ending that is quite dark and that, and that they're a bit surprised by that, but yeah. you know, they want it to be That'll interpreted do. by however. Put that out into the world and we'll claim it as fact. Yeah. But like, I do, I do think that is, that is the case. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, for something that really takes so much pains with the, like making sure we know that Enid is ultimately like really joyful. Like we, it opens up with Enid, like having a dance and like, she really loves things and like, she really like admires things in people. Like she's not like a hate filled person. She just kind of needs to learn how to be part yeah. of things and I- not just a, like admire them or think that they're play things. Yeah. And I, and I know this is not what you're saying, but also it's not that she's not that one would need to be a hate filled person in order 
to end one's own life either. But I think that her, her journey is quite, it just feels very different. Yeah. Um, I think that she finds so much joy in things that, and again, like she's not a real person. She is a character. And, uh, and I just think if, if that's where we're being, if that's what we're being told about her, I just don't really think the film would just decide at the end that's it for her. We'll say what the um, the enlightened exec wanted to put oh, on yeah. the bus at the end. The enlightened exec wanted them to just put like bus to art school or art school sign just on the really bus clear. to make sure that everyone knew she's off to art school. <laughs> enlightened exec is now what I'm going to use whenever there's a bad note. Of it. What would the enlightened exec <laughs> I was going to ask you, what was here? the worst note you've ever given anyone? Oh my God. It's <laughs> pages. It's a whole other podcast okay. of, of terrible notes. Um, bad notes. That's our new podcast. Oh God, but no. that that is just, I mean, look, I, I mean, she probably did go off to art school, but I like that we can uh, 20 odd years later still have the discussion of uh, where Enid ended up. But yeah. um, I don't even know if I think she went to art school. I think she just went to like L.A. or something and just like, I don't know, hung around and met other weird people and whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the success of the film for me is that I don't it's not that I don't care where she ended up, but that doesn't the question of where she ended up does not affect the ending of the film. I don't feel like I was, I don't feel like I was left with um, an unearned cliffhanger or anything odd. I just understand that, as you say, the point was leaving. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. Yeah. And, and that's, that's it. She's like, as a character, she's not like, we, we know she's good at art. Well, we think she's good at art. I mean, everyone tells her she's bad because that, that class seemed just really horrible. Um, but she does have an eye for art and like that's a skill, but I don't think we are supposed to know her path. It's not like if she never went to art school, we'd be like, that's a real shame, actually. Yeah. It's just that we need her to change in some way. And just to, and to go into the art thing and, and the art with Seymour. So that section, and I think this is also in the comic, although maybe in a smaller, in way? a smaller way. Um, she like one of the things that Seymour, one of the objects that Seymour has is, an old sign for a fried chicken restaurant that's called Coons Chicken and has a horribly racist caricature as its sign. And it's from the twenties. And we learn in the film that, um, they changed their name to Cook's Chicken and, you know, tweaked the sign a little bit to make it cuter and less racist. Mm. And he, we later learn that Seymour works there. This isn't apparent to, Enid or us when she first finds it in his house. And he sort of says, I'm just really interested in found art. And I think that there's, I think that the just hiding this stuff means that we're not dealing with it. And then Enid takes that and puts it in an art exhibition as a piece of found art. Her, uh, hitherto for pretentious teacher now thinks she's a genius. Um, but it also causes a massive, you know, um, debate and, uh, you know, people want to take it down and Seymour ends up losing his job because they figure out that he's the one who had taken it out. And I hadn't watched the film in a while. And I, I thought that it was all handled really well. It still felt Mm -hmm. very fresh to me. And I still think that this sort of, we glaze over this part of the past suddenly makes people think that we're beyond it and we're past it and everything is healed. And actually it's not healed. Uh, and, this was a real chicken place. It was a real... Yeah. Which I don't <laughs> <wasn't>. know. <laughs> um, 
So I guess just, yeah, curious what you're, when you were watching it and probably I'm a little bit like, you know, watching these things through my fingers more because I get panicky. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. I was, I was like, does this age well? Is this terrible? But actually I think it is aged even better. Like it's just part of this conversation about acceptance of history versus pretending it didn't happen versus and criticizing history. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's not like, oh, we're putting it up and saying, oh, well, sure, they didn't know at the time. It's, it's look what they were doing. This yeah. is effed up. Yeah. I don't know why I said effed. We're like yeah. to curse so on this podcast. This is cursed already. <laughs> and I think that that's what Seymour is trying to say as well. And I appreciate that because I think maybe in my memory, I thought that he was a little bit more of the like, well, you know, it was just of its time and isn't it quaint. But actually he's, he's making the point of like, yeah. no, th- this was fucked up then. He wanted that to exist like in some way or to, like he was keeping it yeah. because he, he didn't want people to forget in that, that way. this is yeah. what we built this particular empire on that now seems so... Yeah, um, but probably didn't want it on public display. Yeah, <laughs> it exactly. It then cost him his job. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was really... It's a nice little thing that happens towards the end. It's like a separate, again, like a separate episode, um, but that ends up pushing the story along in really good ways as well. And, it's, and, it, and it also embodies, you know, again, what we were saying before about Enid doesn't think beyond the moment, you know, she's like, this is shocking. This will shock people. Mm. And, uh, and she, and you know, she does get that, but I think she didn't think, okay, well, wait a minute. How might this affect Seymour? Yeah. How might this, like, how have I contextualized this? How will this affect people who come across it in Mm. the art show? And like, you know, that, I think that's a conversation we would have now with that sort of found art pieces, what sort of ways you would prepare people and contextualize it. And she thinks I can just throw it up there yeah, and that's enough. And, yeah. um, well as well, I think this is something that I think is really interesting about Enid is that she is immature. Mm. And like something I liked about that whole thing is that she's kind of regurgitating lots of things. She's interested in found art because someone else got a compliment about found art. Yeah. And then she sees the, the, thing and she's the the portrait and she's quite like shocked by it and she knows why in her brain it, yeah. it, it evokes something in her but then Seymour tells her why she's feeling like that and then she regurgitates what Seymour said so it's not like she doesn't have the instinct but she is young yeah and she doesn't have the skills to talk about it so I like that we're watching her grow and learn and make mistakes and make mistakes <laughs> yeah. and yeah and like I think it's really easy to make her just so edgy and cool but she's also she is immature she's like it's like her that, yeah. whole edginess is like it's something in her that she feels all the time is that like I want weird I want whatever but I don't think she gets it about herself and I don't think she gets it about other people or the world or how the world works and that's why her journey I think is so intriguing is that we want her we know it's in her we know she's really cool and she's got cool yeah like she likes good things and she's got cool clothes and she's not afraid of trying things out but she is too young to have context for things and she picks it up and she's interested in it but But she doesn't know it you know there's that moment where she's dressed you know I guess she's wearing like plaid pants and kind of the punky Mm. t-shirt and jacket and someone kind of shouts at her you know poser or punkstead or something like that she's like obviously i'm doing a throwback to a 70s punk and it's meant kind of ironically and like there is that um and i think i was very much this sort of teenager and i think you you were too where you just kind of like okay i'll try that okay like i know it kind of again it goes back to her being i know the normal quote-unquote route 
doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. But there aren't a lot of um, role models or ways I know how to live my life differently. Yeah. So I'll just kind of keep grasping towards anything that seems, yeah. um, you know, out of the ordinary. Yeah. And then that, again, that's where Seymour becomes like, oh, wait, here's an adult with a job. Mm-hmm. This seems cool. Yeah. And, you know, there's also definitely that. And I, I think Seymour, we, you know, we can talk about him more as a character. I think what's interesting about him and the way Steve Buscemi plays him is there's definitely that thing of when you're 20 uh, or, or sorry, she's younger. She's 17 or 18. Yeah. And, and when you're kind of a teenager and someone particularly if you're a young girl, maybe, and there's an older man who's hanging out with you, you're like, I must be really cool. And you mm-hmm. don't think, oh, it's because he's not cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's a danger where Seymour becomes that kind of older mm-hmm. guy. But as you pointed out before, he's really resisting this friendship and yeah. he's really trying to make it above board. And it's not like he's, he's got a long game with her that he's trying to play or anything like that. He's just like genuinely confused by, by her, but also he's a lonely person who's just like, also likes that someone finally is interested in the same things he is. Yeah. yeah and like, I think he, he tries quite often to just tell her that this is weird. And, but then yeah, they, they, they hang out, they have a nice time. She puts him in weird positions. He's like, well, I don't really want to do this anymore. You have to make me go into a sex shop with you. And, you know, and, and he's awkward. He plays it really well as well. Like you really get his vulnerability. Yeah. And, and yeah, genuinely think it would be really difficult to pull this apart and think that he had a long game to, that he was like into her or wanted to have sex with her or whatever. Um, really don't think that was the case. Um, and I think that's really important because like, he's not a, he's not a sleazy old guy. Like he's a lonely person. Yeah. And they do, they do get along. And I think he likes being kind of nurturing towards her as well. And like teaching her about things and why giving giving things context for her. Yeah. And not to, not, not to always bring it around to Sally Rudy, but it's just in my head. But I guess one of the things we talk about with conversations with friends, for example, is that, you know, in, in that story, Nick's passivity allows Frances to have a space where she can start to realize her own power and explore that. And I think that there's a sort of similar dynamic between Hmm. Seymour and Enid where, you know, because he's really, cautious about this whole thing like he really is passive and she's suddenly in a position as an 18 year old weirdo girl in town who people practically throw things at where she can be the one in charge and she can be the one who's exhibiting power and being bossy and and i think that that's quite intoxicating yeah uh and also just a point in your life where like yeah if you can develop that like yeah you know and she has that great energy that i think he's kind of mystified by but also enjoys like this kind of exuberant thing that he's kind of like whoa where is that what is this like he doesn't have that with his flatmates and his mates like and we get that we and we get the creepy version of him with the david cross character yeah oh that's a good point yeah yeah yeah, we get that yeah who actually has a very successful marriage with a woman who's probably that's very true yeah <laughs> this is not to age shame any relationship. No, no. It's just about this one in particular. But yeah, um, that's funny. But you, but he, he is he, the skeezy he version. Does play the skeezy version of yeah. that guy who's like, whoa, wait a minute, high school girls are here. Great, mm. they weren't interested in me in high school. So wait till I charm them now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. didn't work so well. No, it didn't. Did you have a soul patch in that as well, or did yeah. I just place that on did, my yeah. mind? Okay. Yeah, it's funny. Sorry, we're not anti soul patch either. If it works for you, no, it works for you. Just, just 
when you, when you pair it with that particular personality type. Yes, exactly. You're asking for trouble. <laughs> you really are. Asking for, <laughs> oh God. for mockery. Yeah, you really are. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think there's something about this film that works um, a, as a whole, mm. you know, you can break it down as much as you want, but like, I love the world of it. Like it's, it's, it's built like a science fiction film, you know, like it, the world feels of itself, whatever this little town is, it just feels very like, like an extra character. You know, that's such yeah. a thing that. But Terry said, say, and but also like they didn't put a lot of extras in. I think he he made the mm. choice of places where you would normally see more people walking around in a mall or something like you. You mm. just don't like it is quite literally a ghost world. Like yeah. he's he's peopled it or yeah. unpeopled it in that way. Well, that's it's interesting because you know you could say that that's how Enid is looking at everything all the time. Is that like she's not looking at this weird fifties diner as a place that people could go to and bring their kids? It just exists as like this. Hitch thing that she's thing. going to yeah. like look at and go whoa you know um and everything around you know she's judgmental I guess for want of a better word of absolutely everything she sees she finds things interesting but she also like is completely dismissive of things and like nothing is about you could say this already but nothing is about other people or like how something might function for anybody but her yeah and that is like it's what's interesting about the film is that it lets you experience that I guess from her point of view that everything is contextualized just for her I think the other thing that it gets really right at least again in my in my personal experience and I think the the book does this as well is the sort of um again in that way of trying to latch on to sort of anything counter-cultural the the reliance and irony as a form mm. of humor when you're that age um you yeah. know, you, you over, like I overdid it, but like you sort of anything, it's everything becomes deadpan. Everything is, oh my God, I love this ironically. Yeah. And it's just because it sort of gives you, I think it also, and one day I keep, I keep been swearing for a decade. I'm going to write an in defense of irony um, <laughs> essay because I think it's gotten a bad rap over the years, but I think particularly when you're moving from childhood to adulthood and you're not ready to let go of childhood things, mm. irony becomes quite a useful way as a teenager to, still hold on to some of those things that you love, yeah. but do it in a way that you think is socially acceptable. Yeah. That's uh, a good point. And I yeah. think that I just think it's a real teen alternative teen thing, especially. Yeah. And I think one of the things Daniel Clowes said about writing this and Enid and Rebecca in particular is he was like, yeah, whenever I wrote male characters, people just always assumed that it was my point of view. Oh yeah. Male characters. <laughs> and I got kind of tired of that. So but I did want to write something that had my point of view. So I put them in female characters. And no, one, no one ever told me that it was, that it was, is a great trick obviously on the page. I loved that. I love that too. I think that's a great point about like, um, being that age and irony and also like not really understanding why you like things yeah. as well. And then just kind of going, well, I'll chance my arm by going like, oh, isn't that so uncool that maybe it's cool. Maybe you just won't know to argue with me. It's a real safety net. Yeah, it really is. It yeah. really is. Um, and then there's, there is kind of the flip side. We see it a, a little bit with Seymour that he's kind of gone bitter and angry. Like, you know, like mm. this, like he gets really angry sometimes. And like the, the lady with all the kids and he's like, well, just have a few more kids. Why don't you? And like, yeah. like shouting at the radio and this kind of thing that like when you lose the kind of um, young person, cool irony, and yet you're still that outsider that maybe that could twist a little bit into something that's a little bit more deranged 
Um, so I think there's just lots of signifiers in the film of like where Enid could end up and like various directions she could take. And some of them are kind of like pleasant in that, like, you know, we love Seymour's record collection and that's yeah. really cool. And he has a good eye for stuff. Um, but also then maybe you'll end up, you know, a bit lonely or angry or whatever. Um, yeah. he's, he's, he becomes, a, he, like, he is a very closed off person who does think he's better yeah. than a lot of people. And you, you sort of see that like, okay, that is, if you draw this to that conclusion, it's not the most, it's perhaps not the most successful model of an adult that you could, yeah. you could be aiming for, but, but it's also, is there talks- any successful model of adult available to her? No, no, <laughs> I don't know. Her, she seems to have a pretty good dad. Her he's dad a, is lovely, he's great. but like, God, he's not, he's, he's very like timid and probably yeah. not great at getting through life. It's true. Very nervous little guy, but I think she obviously right. dominates There's- him entirely. And then she'll, he'll replace her with the, the lady. Um, I can't think of her name. Um, who probably would also dominate him, though she seems like a lovely lady. Yeah. But yeah, there's role models are few and far between in this ghost world. Yes. <laughs> well put. Um, should we talk about casting? Yeah. So. Thor, I love it all. <laughs> all of it's good. <laughs> it's all good. Kenny from Fraser. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we asked producer Bren, was there any points that he thought we needed to cover about ghost world? And he said that he thought it has the best fart in all of cinema. Yeah. And and then he made a very compelling argument for it so we, we listen to it we listen to it well here's where the fun never stops she could at least have the decency to call me back wasted time trying to logically figure out the female brain that's for sure maybe she got another boyfriend yeah well thanks for cheering me up so <laughs> it is a very funny scene <laughs> yeah it, like and, and you know I think even without the visual of Kenny from Frasier, <laughs> you can get um, I, maybe maybe what the what the audio doesn't quite convey is is there's a nice question about whether or not um, Steve Buscemi is frustrated at the comment of maybe she got another boyfriend or the fart or both <laughs> or both. And like just also to say that this film, this this sorry, this scene comes towards the end when like Seymour is at his lowest point, like yeah. he is low and it's just such a weird place to put a fart like that. <laughs> but I guess all the humor is sort of just like odd. Weird. It's yeah, it's weird. No, there's no like comfortable gags really going on. Everything is just like oh, weird. And actually that reminds me just before we go into casting. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> well, very, with the, with the Seymour and the low point, I think what's also really interesting about that is I, I think the I think that Seymour and Enid sleeping together. And when we talked about this in the in the group as well, like it's a real challenging moment and i think what's interesting is that everyone who watches it seems like oh don't do it don't do it for both of them and it's not a successful moment for him you know it's like there's there's just a lot of reasons it feels wrong it doesn't feel like their relationship it makes him seem more pathetic it makes Mm. us see him as pathetic it makes her see him as pathetic and like so his so I, i think there's something interesting and it's a little bit of an inversion in that like in this film, because it is so much about her, the, the like older loser, 40 year old guy sleeping with the high schooler or not, you know, recent graduate. Mm. It's the baddest. It's the bad yeah. moment. It's the low moment. It's the pits. Absolutely. And like, they, they're really careful with that in the yeah. lead up to 
them sleeping together. Just every beat of it, every touch, every look You're is just all going, just no, like, no, oh. no, no, no. Yeah. And, and he's, yeah, he's, he's just convinced by it and swept away in some weird romance. But it's still, and, it's, it's really good filmmaking because it's still, there's still something slightly romantic about, like, it feels like you, you two know, people genuinely needing each other. Yeah, and yeah. but you just can sense in every <sighs> don't need fiber each other of like your that. being that yeah. you don't want it to happen. But it's not like, yeah, it's it's not um, it's not untoward. It doesn't feel violent or um, in any way, you know, taking either of them or taking advantage of the other one. Like no. it's really just. It is genuinely it, two people who need each other in a certain way that they didn't they realize they shouldn't have done this just, thing. They, yeah, they <laughs> yeah. Missed, they totally it was a yeah, it was a lapse in judgment. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. Yeah. That went from Kenny to Fraser to farts to sex and now now back to Kenny to Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> Great casting. Great casting. Um yeah, I mean, I think I think the cast do a lot of work in this film like they're great they're all brilliant I think every like you do not for a second get taken out of this world like I think everyone is spot on from like the smallest actor to the biggest actor like they're just all the weird little side characters are so good and like Thora Birch has to carry this entire film completely in her performance as Enid who is such a complicated character yeah like the more we're talking about it even here and pulling her apart like there's so much that has to go right in order for Enid to work as a character because you have to remain empathetic to her you don't have to like like her because she's hard work but I think she does such a brilliant job of allowing us to to want to mind her or to like want the best for her we 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 love her yeah in whatever way I mean, I just want to read the the quote from the New York Times review by A.O. Scott, um, who said, Thora Birch, whose performance as Lester Burnham's alienated daughter was the best thing about American Beauty, plays a similar character here with even more intelligence and restraint. And I thought that was a really, you know, and I think that is, it's like if that, if her character in American Beauty, you know, is pushed to be more alternative and then given the space and the reality and the focus. Yeah. um, And I think... Uh, this other quote I really like just from the reviews, which is from Robert, Robert, Ebert, Roger Ebert, who gave the film four out of four stars said, I wanted to hug this movie and I just <laughs> love it. It takes such a risky journey and it never steps wrong. It creates specific, original, believable, lovable characters and meanders with them through their inconsolable days, never losing its sense of humor. And I think that's perfect. That's yeah. He was pretty good at what he did. He was really good at what he did. Yeah. He was really good at seeing what, the intention was behind a thing and if that worked, which is really essentially what you should probably be doing as a critic. Um, not to tell critics how to do their job. It's true. I, I, we could have a whole other debate about that, but, <laughs> but not for now. Uh, but I, I do like when, I do like when people um, understand what a film is trying to do and then judge it on that. Anyway, um, casting. So Thor Birch, great. Great. Um, and then Scarlett Johansson. Was this her first film? Uh, don't know if it was her first film. I feel it was like early on. Have... She was not yet Scarlet. She was not ScarJo. No, this was like this first time I ever saw her. I think she might have been in things when she was younger, but okay. um, but this is the first thing I ever saw her in. And I mean, I didn't really particularly take to her. I remember thinking she was a bit of a bad actress, but also then thought she's just kind of supposed to be very glib and quiet and humorless so I think she's probably actually doing more work than yeah, I teenage think, me thought I think I thought I think I thought the same but then watching it now I was like oh she really is 
like that is a that is a type that is a deadpan yeah. type and i think also for that character and when you're scarlett johansson playing that character who's like she's very beautiful yeah and they play down her beauty a bit yeah but there is also i think a realistic like I wouldn't say it's a tension between the two of them, but there's an awareness from Enid anyway, that Rebecca is the like, you know, blonde, yeah, you know, more stereotypically beautiful one. Mm. Um, although also the recipient of some anti-Semitism from the, the villain of the piece, yeah. <laughs> jerky chapbook guy. Um, but I think that she is really, I think that when you are someone maybe who looks like that, but has their alternative spirit, like you do really Mm -hmm. have to play the deadpan. Yeah. Um, And I feel like in retrospect, I look at her and I feel like, oh, I actually recognize like some of my friends. I feel like, I think that there is a bit of you in them or them in you. And yeah, I I think I I definitely get the nuance of what she was trying to do there. Maybe even like knowing her from other things now, you see that that's not her she's playing a part which obviously obviously she is she's an actress um but the vulnerability of having to admit like i got some glasses and i think they're cool and then thorbert or like enid is like oh your glasses from ikea but like yeah she's revealing that to her and being defensive with each other and their chemistry is really good because you really believe that they know every inch of each other yeah and actually even without probably knowing what's going on, they're kind of just at, at odds with each other for probably the first time. And she I plays think, that really well. I think that between the performances from the two of them, which also I think really comes from the direction, there's a version of that where, you know, in an effort to make us empathize more with Enid, for example, you, you end up making Rebecca you kind of you could lose her as a character yeah. really easily. You could really like lose she her is to be really like capitalistic or whatever. Really being into Starbucks or yeah. wherever it is she's working. And like she's she's not like she's had a personality change. You think mm. you see why they're friends, but you just see yeah. that she's sort of settling into something different. And yeah. I think again, that's, that's real, like really sensitive filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and that's like, why these characters, I could see the enlightened real. executive giving the note that she needs to be a little bit more horrible. Otherwise we're never going to yeah. empathize with Enid. And I think yes. that that's not true. Yeah. It's brave to go down that road. I think the yeah. way they did. Um, and then Seymour, uh, also Seems has to, uh, this. you can't go one tiny bit wrong with this character. He's terrible. <laughs> like, yeah. You really, really can't. Um, I mean, he's, br- he's brilliant. Yeah. Like he's always brilliant, but he's particular. this is my favorite of, of his roles, I think. Um, but just that sort of, you can really buy that she would like adore him and look up to him. And you can also really buy that he thinks it's ridiculous that she looks up to him and adores him. Yeah. I think that's. That's really endearing. <laughs> and also you could buy, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to sound cruel about this, but you know, like Steve Buscemi has got a really unique look mm. and there's something non-threatening about that. Maybe if you are an Enid yeah. and, you know, I think if you, if you cast that as a more matinee, idle, handsome man, mm. then that dynamic automatically becomes fraught with sexual tension early on. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. and, and it's not because of, you know, it's, it's not, it's not purely his face. It's also his physicality and how he's styled. And like, there's a lot of, yeah. the, you know, they, they could have made him into someone know, closer to a matinee yeah. idol. Yeah. But I think that that dynamic also makes things feel safe for her, mm. um, which then allows their friendship to develop, which then, as we discussed, turns into something else that doesn't, it, that is a misstep, but you, you don't see it coming. Cause you're sort of like, well, they just really don't. Yeah. This isn't, this doesn't feel like, um, yeah, there's not a, sexual chemistry here surely they would never 
Never. Yeah. No, no. What's happening? No. <laughs> Please don't. Um, yeah. And like, I mean, I guess he he is probably portrayed as a little bit sexless or that he he doesn't connect. I guess we've seen we see him with two women. So we see him with that woman in the, the bar the, when he's there to see the jazz show. And then she's just really into blues hammer. Oh, and uh, and like, you know, he's her. trying and it's just not it's, it's it's really awkward. And then obviously she. God forbid, dances to country rock music and he's done. Um, and then we see him with, I can't remember his girlfriend's name, but the the girl that he uh, tries was, to settle down with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that isn't right either. Like I it know. just isn't right. So you feel sorry for Seymour because I don't want the film to be saying that there's nobody out there for Seymour because I don't think that's true. Um, but I think it might be saying but I that. Think, but I think it's, it's saying that in some ways because he... You know, like, I think he has a hand in his own bitterness, you know, like, yeah. and his, um, his slightly holier than thou attitude towards people is, uh, an armor for him. Mm. Yeah. But sure. also it's an armor of his own making. Yeah. And I think that's, as you pointed out, when you see those kind of flashes of real anger from him and you're mm. like, okay, see you're not like, uh, our pity does not totally belong with you. The world has not done this to you. Yeah. You know, you've, you. you've done this. Yeah. And, um, I think we think he's a good guy, like a, like a great guy that like deserves happiness and we'd like him to be happy. Yeah, you just want him to like grow up a little yeah. bit in oh, his own way. Just like Enid. You know what? He'd be really good friends with Rob from High Fit Oh, <laughs> like going through all the Robs we know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rob from High Fit Yeah. 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 They well, just, Rob they is all right with women. No, it's true. He'd actually be more friends with Barry and Dick. Yes. I could totally see him going into the shop. Yeah. He goes yeah. to championship and he'd be annoyed that they didn't have the like jazz that he wanted and that they're all too like interested in young people, punk music. And, yeah. you know, oh, this crossover we really need. Yeah. I would love that. I'm sure he's mates with John Cusack and all that. So anyway, very <laughs> kind of You guys are there somewhere. Um, uh, he's great. Anybody else? Bob Balaban. We love him. Always love Bob Obviously. Balaban. He's very Crazy sweet. And sad. I love him so much. I like to think when Enid goes off to art school or wherever she goes on the bus, um, I like to think he makes it work with the the nice lady. I do too. But I just love Bob Balaban and everything he does. Oh, just so adorable. I love him so That's much. That's when he plays a jerk. He's really Yeah, no, he's great. He's great. He's you know what's a great, but this is a real divergence, but when he plays this sort of like, uh, smarmy movie producer donor in the West Wing. It's really great. Oh, I don't think I've seen, I haven't seen all of West Wing. Well, so I haven't seen that, but there's I a, look there's forward to that. sort of Bob Balaban. And, you know, he's just a little bit of a, like... I think I need to get my West Wing back off Mark Byrne, uh-huh. who's probably uh-huh. listening. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, he may have already given it back to me and I've forgotten, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah, but you have moved, so... Um, yes. Any other burning points about ghost world um soundtrack great soundtrack it is great soundtrack it is one of those soundtracks that you probably can't just listen to from beginning to end because it is so crazy it just goes all over the place so like as a soundtrack but oh i just think you could tell this film was put together by a bunch of nerds because it really goes like all over the place really great songs and that's something i think maybe when you're like 17 or 18 and you watch this film you're as clueless as Enid as to the world that these things are coming from so like the the film opens with this wonderful 
dance sequence that she's watching on a videotape. It's like an old Bollywood movie. Um, and like, I'd never seen a Bollywood movie and I didn't know what in the world I was looking at. And like, they're all wearing masks and gold dresses and it's really cool. And she's dancing around to it. And that world just feels really like alien and brilliant to me. And, you know, what a brilliant way to start. Um, but then even like the music that they're all listening to, it's just all like vintage and different and weird to me as a young person. So that was so intriguing and you can really, you know, like that scene where Enid gets the record that Seymour has has sold her and she just lies on her bed and listens to it and she listens to it over and over. Like that's just such gorgeous teenager behavior. Yeah. That, you know, I, I like that it wasn't um, stuff I'd heard of, like not that I was a super sophisticated teenager, but that's, it's nice. They made a real effort, I think, to find uh, I don't, it was probably not an effort on their part. They probably know all the weird stuff. Yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> but like they, you know, it probably comes naturally to them is what I mean. Um, I just think that all really works. So many nice little musical pieces in this film. Um, it all really works with how the film looks because I think the film is really vibrant. Like yeah. obviously is not very realistic looking. It, but it, it really evokes very... the time. Like I think what's interesting about it is it really evokes a late 90s kind of, Early off, more a late nineties vibe without yeah. any pop culture references, really. Yeah, that's true. That is true. We don't have any apart from like that. We know a Starbucks type thing exists or like whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like a very vague time period. I like, but that. also very specific at the same time. Yeah. It's like you wouldn't watch that and kind of place it anything other than the yeah. late nineties. But it and possibly like somewhere between when the comics came out and the film was made. I mean, like I it's think, that entire stretch. Uh, yeah, I think that feels very purposeful as well because the mm. comics are more early nineties. Yeah, came out early aughts, and it was sort of like you know what. 1998. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere between That's there. when yes. this, this takes place. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I would say also, I mean, Terry Swigoff hasn't, she doesn't have a massive, um, like, filmography. No, no. And he did uh, a follow up to this, which was called Art School Confidential, which Enid is not in. No, <laughs> so. and it's sort of, yeah, it feels of the same universe. I don't, I don't love it. Yeah. And I haven't seen it since it came out, but I was so excited to see it when it came out. And then I, I watched like it, it when we, can't. when we watched Ghost World, because okay. I had never seen it before. And I think if you're like, if you're in a Ghost World vibe and you're like, I just need more. Yeah. It's definitely worth watching. But I think. Well, it feels different, right? Like, I mean, the whole thing about Ghost World is that it feels a certain way. I don't think Art School Confidential has that feel. Well, also, I mean, Ghost World, you know, and as much as we've talked about there, there being, a, you know, narrative plot to it that they've kind of created mm. like it is also that sort of like long hot summer of like just wanting something to happen and art school yeah. confidential is also like a serial killer story yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's so it's really like that's what it is it's yeah. not um it's not a character piece in the same way mm. and i think it makes some funny commentary on art school but it's sort of like what he manages to do in just the art class scenes in yeah ghost world kind of takes up a whole movie mm. in Art School Confidential plus murder. Yeah. And you're just like, mm. yeah, it's, it, it doesn't scratch the itch. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Um, yeah. In terms of burning points, I think my, I think music was it. Was yeah. Did you have anything else that you wanted to? I think that was it. I just really, um, really enjoy it. It's a good summer movie. Yeah. I could just watch this movie every day for the rest of my life. And I just love it so much. It's always It's full very comforting. Surprises. Yeah. It's lovely. Um, so I was going to say, what have we got next? But we do have a podcast next before. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Well, you know what? The next, the next thing that will be in cinemas, yes. which will probably come out before this podcast is, is The Great Gatsby. Yes. Um, we have also done The Talented Mr. Ripley in between. Yeah. Um, 
And so we will try to catch up with a talented Mr. Ripley podcast before Gatsby. It might end up being one or the other. Yeah. Who knows? Um, if you, if you have a preference. I'd really like to talk about Talented Mr. Ripley because I love it so much. But anyway. I was talking to the audience and asking them for their Not not you. What about But no, obviously, yeah. Um, Anyway, maybe we could just do both. Um, But yeah, Great Gatsby. This is uh, this month's one and we will be watching the 1973 version with Robert Redford. Sam Watterson. Which I've never seen. Me either. And you still won't. Uh, I I won't see it on the big screen because I will be in Vienna. Um, But I will try watch it at some point before we podcast um and then we will have to kill a mockingbird at the yeah. end of july which is one we ha- we've done twice before i believe yes yes maybe even three times oh geez i think it's, I think it's in done. the shawshank princess bride yeah. hall of fame for things that we've done a few times clueless is also one we've done a few times but yeah so to kill a mockingbird it's a classic i love it um happy to do that one again and then actually we've strayed in august from our planned greatest hits because mm-hmm. we're doing one that we hadn't actually done before which is part of the lighthouse teen season which is easy a which is based on Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. I haven't read since high school. I've never read it. Um, I've only seen that movie once. So, yeah, that'll be... Is it hard? (laughs) Is it, like, weird? I mean, it's old. English-y? No, no, it's fine. I also think it's it's quite brief. I mean, look, it's high school reading. Like, you would have to read it in the summer going into high school. So Okay, well, then I would be probably okay with that level of reading. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. Um, And I think that we, we always like those ones that are, like an updated version of an old oh yeah and I love turned into a teen movie I wasn't a particular fan when it came out but oh interesting but Stanley Tucci is great well you can't just like everything just cause Stanley Tucci's in it but you can love him in it yeah mm. no okay you can love everything Stanley Tucci's in yeah. just because he's in it okay um, but anyway look I'm, I mean Jesus I'm happy to revisit and enjoy it um, and then the last one that we've kind of uh, properly announced is our 10 year anniversary in September. 10 years of this, uh. um, which is Breakfast at Tiffany's. I'm really excited about rereading because I actually loved that book so much. Great um, book. Don't love the film. I think I said that on the last podcast as yeah, well. We'll say it every podcast. We'll yep. definitely say it on the Breakfast at Tiffany's podcast. Over and over again. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's our next few Um yeah, I'll be leaving you in Chelsea's capable hands on Monday for the Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. You'll have loads to say about that because you're from there. I'm from Long Island. Yeah. It's in our blood. When I was looking at wedding venues, they tried to sell me the Gatsby package. And I was like, I don't think that that's what that book was about. <laughs> I don't think that's we'll definitely that's talk about that. Um, but anyway. That's so funny. Um, do you need your Gatsby t-shirt back? No, I okay. think I will. I will come up with an outfit. I will worry. wear my Gatsby t-shirt in Vienna. Excellent. And the Gatsby necklace that you gave me. <laughs> I'll be uh, suited and booted, even though I'm not there. Yes. Um, well, that's probably it then. I think I that guess. is. Thanks again. Uh, thanks, Cha. Thank you, Chelsea. And thanks for listening if you still are. Yes. See you soon. Thank you. Bye.